Take your Bibles, if you would, and go to John chapter 1 this morning with me. John chapter 1. If you are a visitor, we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and today I'm going to clue up verses 1 to 18, which is the introduction to this Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, where John gives us all of the reasons or the introduction, all of the things he wants to celebrate, and he's going to spend the next 20-odd chapters breaking this down where he then states his purpose for writing the Gospel of John at the end of the book. So you have to read all the book to find out why he wrote it. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, but I want to read verses 10 to 18 for you this morning. So if you've got a Bible, follow along. I want to read verses 10 to 18. Actually, let's read verse 9. <clears throat> John says, The true light, that's talking about Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And this son from the father is full of grace and truth. John, this is John the Baptist in verse 15, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law, that's all the rules, all the thou shalt and the shall nots was given through Moses. And we know that at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and more. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now he sums it up like this. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who was at the Father's side, he being Christ, has made him God known. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Well, today is November the 20th based on some confessions I have made in the last number of weeks, I want to inform everybody that from today, it is 35 days till Christmas. I have been very excited to see this little room decorated for Christmas. My wife, don't cry, Jennifer, don't cry. It's not that bad. It's Christmas. It's coming. 35 days. The countdown is on. I really don't care about the gifts. I just want the turkey. I just want the turkey, as big a turkey as I can get with lots of leftovers and lots of stuffing where it's just smothered in butter. Oh, oh, I'm hungry already. As I've confessed, I love Christmas. And if you've been around the city at all, you already have noticed that the malls already have their decorations up. The stores are playing Christmas music. The marketing of Christmas is at a frantic pace. 
in schools of all kinds. Plays are being rehearsed. Young people are practicing, planning, and likely making lists. If you've probably seen them, my daughter does this. She makes little lists and then conveniently leaves them around the living room or kitchen where mom and dad will find them. Your kids may be dropping hints. Husbands and wives may be doing that, imagining what the morning of the 25th will be like, or maybe some of you are dreading it. Already, many of you as parents are exhausted. You're too busy. You're planning your schedules. There'll be staff parties, family get-togethers. There'll be baking to be done, turkeys to be bought, favorite recipes to break out. From the mall to the workplace to the school and the university streets and homes, living rooms and kitchens. (laughs) Oh, it's Christmas. I love it. I really do. Our house is fully decorated. And I didn't do a thing. (laughs) Debbie did it all. I just get the benefits. Oh, actually, I did hang Christmas lights last week. I did hang Christmas lights. But wait, there's more. Because for all of this, it's Christmas. With all of the fuss and the clamor, with all of the phonetic pace, the money being spent, carols sung, pageants attended, presents wrapped. Riddle me this. Why does it seem like the world knows less and less of Jesus? Or the reason for the season, to use a modern cliche. And that is exactly what John explains to us in John chapter 1 in his introduction of verses 1 to 18. The title of my sermon this morning is just, I want to spend a few minutes going with previews of Christmas. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give you something about Christmas, but Matthew and Luke give you all of the details. They go into how Jesus was conceived and how he was born, and that's where you hear about all the different things. Mark just goes right into Jesus the man, but John introduces Jesus the God-man. Where Matthew and Luke will give us genealogies and announcements and prophecies fulfilled, glorious proclamations from angels and angelic hosts. There's the star from the east, there's wise men and shepherds, there's a paranoid and vengeful king, there's apathetic religious leaders and groups, there's an uneasy, ignorant city. But there's one thing that keeps appearing in Matthew and in Luke and in John, and that's light. Light keeps coming up. There is the star which leads the Gentile pagans to Jesus. There's the brightness of the angelic host that proclaims Jesus to lowly Jewish shepherds. There's that star that comes to Jerusalem and rests in Bethlehem over a stable. And as you're going to see over the next four weeks as we enter into Advent, there are all kinds and various responses to Jesus or responses to Christmas. From every walk of life, men and women, rich and poor, powerful and the weak, religious and non-religious, even pagans and spiritualists. In John chapter 1, this is what John focuses on. He introduces us to Jesus, God in the flesh. That was verse 14, the word. And how did he describe him? He always describes him as light. Light of the world. And then John takes us on a journey of reactions. 
How did the world respond to the light of the world? Why did the light come? What power does Jesus, the light of the world, have? (laughs) And that's what you see in John 1, 10 to 18. You see, every one of us, my goal is for myself and for every one of you to come face to face with your response to Jesus. Because make no mistake about it. I want everybody to understand. Every one of you here will each one of you make a decision about Jesus. Every one of you here will either accept him or reject him. And the plea from my heart to yours is simply this. With Christmas coming in 2016, accept Jesus. Believe in him. Trust him. Now when I say these things, I want to make very clear what I mean. Solomon writes these words. Many of you that have gone to Sunday school or maybe you are raised in a Christian home, maybe you've seen this on a coffee mug or it's been on a plaque on a hung on a wall in your house. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, where Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Now, that's not where it stops, because that's why I always add verse 7. He says, Be not wise in your own eyes. You know, it's funny, when I was a teenager, I think I've told you, I forget who it was, I think it might have been Mark Twain that said that when your child becomes a teenager from 13 to 19, you should put them in a barrel with a hole in it and seal it. And then when they become 20, seal the hole. (laughs) That's what Mark Twain once said, all right? But it is amazing to me because it seems that the more the world gets crazy, the more this constant theme, what was something that I felt um, that I was very much a part of as a teenager, which was I had figured it out. I was wise in my own eyes. But it seems that the older I get, the more people around me, everybody believes that their way of looking at things is right. And if you, if you live in the world, you know this to be true. Everybody says, my opinion is right. And we have a pandemic of the opposite of these. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And then Solomon says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, I want you to know this morning that if you flirt with Jesus, you kind of, you know about him. You, you, you might even say, I, I like the good parts. Gandhi loved the red letter Bible. You see him, some of you see Jesus like he's a genie or, or Santa Claus. If your love for and your affection of Jesus is more about what you can get out of him than what he says you need, then in our passage, verse 11 is probably one of the most tragic verses in all the Bible. He came unto his own and his own people didn't know him. And so to tip my hand, so to speak, I'm, I'm praying and hoping that while I have to deal with verses 10 and 11, I really hope and pray that verses 12 to 18 is what will dominate your mind and your life for eternity from maybe this sermon forward. But before we get to that, before we find hope in the good news, we got to be honest and face the reality of the bad news. And so my first point this morning is simply this, 
the light of the world rejected. Because we live in a world that even though it's 35 days from Christmas, even though you're going to hear all kinds of Christmas carols that will talk about Jesus, you'll probably hear Silent Night, Holy Night over and over again through the malls and in the stores and on television. And yet people sing it. It's like Amazing Grace and Silent Night, Holy Night to me are the most oversung, misunderstood songs in all of songdom. Because people sing them and don't take or pay attention to what they're actually saying. And so here you have it. Look at verse 10. John says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. That's John saying Jesus is the creator. And then he says, but the world didn't know him. Uh, Now think about it. Jesus comes. He's the creator. Yet his own creation, those made in his image, don't know him. Now, if you're like me, whenever I read stuff like this, the older I've gotten, especially having been raised in church, I have asked the question, why, more than ever. Why, why is that? Why, why, do, why is this that he came into the world and don't know him? Because we live in what is called, in modern culture, we're supposed to live in the most enlightened age of human history. We have access to more information than ever before. Now, granted, you also have access to bad information. You can find bad things. I I don't know who did it, who did that commercial on television that was trying to help you understand how to use the internet. And and they got this big looming dude and this girl finally found this French guy on the internet and he kind of lumbers up and you can tell he's not from Paris. And uh, he kind of goes, bonjour. And, and, and you can tell, like, she's just been sold a bill of goods. And so we, we live in this enlightened age, but yet we seem to be more confused than ever. In fact, it's amazing to me that the more the world goes on, the more history pre- repeats itself. An old evangelist, he was a baseball player that came to Christ, and he turned into an evangelist named Billy Sunday. Maybe he was right after all who said this in the late 1800s. Nowadays... We think we are too smart to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and too well-educated to believe in the resurrection. That's why people are going to the devil in multitudes. I I heard about this last night at a meeting of churches from this city. Can you imagine what it must have been like for John? You see, you come unto your own and, and the world was made by him, but they didn't know him. See, we've all done something. Now, th- track with me on this. We've all done something, uh, f- something for someone, maybe a good thing to try and surprise them, do something good for them, only to be misunderstood or have our act misinterpreted. Something that was meant for good, but was received horribly wrong. The, the most epic fight Debbie and I ever had was on my 30th birthday. My wife planned the most awesome of surprise parties for me and invited everybody we knew. And so to get me out of the house, she said to me, her ploy was, what's your favorite restaurant? Now down on Kemmout Road, which is now called Biggs, it used to be called, before it was Don Cherry's, it was called Knickerbockers. And they had a great meal in there called the Oink Peep Moo. All right, you got chicken, beef, and pork all on the same plate. So, I mean, what man wouldn't want that to eat all the time. And I told Deb, that's my restaurant. That's where I want to go. So Deb said, all right, for your birthday, we're going there. And I was thrilled. And we got there and it was a 45 minute lineup to get in. Now Deb was trapped because she hadn't made a reservation. Now there's literally 30, 40, 50 people back at her house. So Deb says, 
I don't want to stay and wait. And I'm like, but it's my birthday. You asked me to pick my restaurant. I picked it. And Deb was like, I don't want to stay. So then I was like, it's my birthday. And I want to stay. And Deb was like, I don't want to stay. So now I am not happy. And I'm like, all right, you want to take me out for my birthday, do you? Let's go to McDonald's. So up to McDonald's we go, which when the McDonald's was there on Camp Road, and I order two cheeseburgers, and the whole time, Debbie, sit, and I'm eating every bite. Some birthday this is. Don't be inviting me out for my birthday anymore. How much do you love me? Invite me out, shove me in the McDonald's. I mean, I peeled the verbal flesh off my dear wife one strip at a time, and Deb just sat there and took it. And then we go home. And I walk through the door. Surprise! All my friends are there. And I literally stood there and went, I, I, I literally ran up to my bedroom. I'm, Debbie comes up at me. She goes, well, I'm like the worst husband ever. And you did so much for me. And I didn't know what I yelled at you. And I, I'm the, I suck as a husband. And, and I'm crying my eyes. And Debbie's like, what? I forgive you. I love you. Would you just come downstairs? We've all done this, haven't we? Where we, we, we did something, something was meant to be good and, and someone just didn't get it. Jesus comes. It's, it's good. He's come to enlighten us. He's come to rescue us. He's come to save us from ourselves and we just don't get it. We're busy at McDonald's eating cheeseburgers complaining. Now, to take it from the funny into the tragic of realities, in 1866, Robert Thomas went to Korea to bring the gospel to that needy country. Thomas loved God, and God had put a love for Korea in his heart. So loaded with Bibles, he made his way. But while in transit, the boat he was on got into a fight with the Korean Coast Guard. The ship was lost and many on board died, but Thomas made it out alive and using all of the Bibles almost as a life preserver, he made it to shore only as the soldiers found him and surrounded him. And he passionately pushed the Bibles forward and put them into their hands as a gift to every one of his enemies. And their response, they clubbed him to death on the beach. Now, if I had to end here, <laughs> if you're visiting, you'd be like, I'm not going back to that church. Like, that's like the most sober, mind-numbingly negative sermon I've ever heard. And what tragedy. But to be honest, much of the world's outlook of life makes perfect sense if this is what the reality is. It's no wonder that the world says, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. And if you have many friends that don't know Jesus, you know that that's really the attitude. Many people are hanging on, trying to make sense out of life, trying to have a good time, trying to be, hopefully be a good person, but have some fun along the way, looking out for themselves. But they don't really have a lot of hope. They fear death. They don't know what to do with tragedy. Do you know how many times I've had people tell me, how could a loving God let that happen? And I've thought to myself, how could a holy God not just walk away from all of us?
But I'm so thankful that John doesn't stop writing at verse 10 and 11. He continues and he gives us the greatest news ever. He says, Jesus is here. See, John is not just a writer of the gospel. He's also a follower of Jesus. He's a witness. As one man puts it, the Bible was written by ordinary people to enlighten other ordinary people. That's why the Bible was written. And indeed, the greatest thing to ever happen to humanity was the coming of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. But equally tragic was that Jesus came and he was actually rejected. John tells us about three levels of attitudes of rejection to Jesus in verses 10 and 11. And I just got to walk you through this because I need to make sure you can find yourself and see how God wants to save you. Notice with me, number one is those who simply didn't recognize Jesus. He came unto his own. It says here in verse 10, it says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How can this be? Herman Ritteros expresses it like this. The world to which the word came was his own creation. The world did not know him, not because he was a stranger, but because Humanity was estranged from him. The world should have known him. You see, nature knows Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, remember when Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples marvel and they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the winds and the waves obey him. In Psalm 19, it tells us that the sun rises in the east and moves across the sky and sets in the west, and it just proclaims God. Romans 10 tells us creation yearns to be freed from the curse of human sin. You see, the reason humanity doesn't know Jesus is because we're spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's just reality. We're not looking for him. Because we don't even think we need him. And even when we recognize we got needs in our life, the last thing or the last person we think of is Jesus. But there's a second level because there's those who simply don't want Jesus. You see, let's be honest. Humanity is in love with itself and with its pleasures or the pursuit of it. That's what John 3.19 says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the life. Why? Because their works were evil. Think about the Bible, the Bible's record of rejection. Even as we go through the next four weeks of Advent, you've got the innkeeper in Bethlehem. There's no room here in my inn for Jesus. Then there's Herod, the king, who rejects him. There's Pontius Pilate, who didn't want him. What about that other thief on the cross who only saw him as a means to maybe get out of jail free, so to speak? Isaiah was right in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. Richard Phillips sums it up well. Because humanity is spiritually dead, the world didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. Because humanity is morally dead, Jesus is not wanted. The world's not interested in what Christ has to offer, so it takes no interest in knowing him. It's not persuaded to believe in him. You can see this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 23 to 26. You've got three guys. One's named Felix, the other one's Festus, and King Agrippa. Felix says, almost you persuade me. Felix says, I think you're mad. And on and on it goes. 
These are the typical reactions of the world, but it's actually much worse. Because then, number three, there are those who simply refuse to accept Jesus. Look at verse 11 in Matt and John 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now think about that. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, God said to the nation of Israel, you are my treasured possession among all the peoples. That's what he says. The nation of Israel was special. They were chosen. They were privileged. They were and should have been prepared. God gave Israel actually the decoder ring to know and understand Jesus. They had the whole Old Testament. They had prophets. They had all of these things. And when he came, they still said, no, we don't want him. Oh, they said, oh, we want his stuff. How many times did Israel say when Jesus walked the earth, show us a sign, do a wonder, give us some bread or give us some drink, give us freedom from Rome, but then leave us alone. Let us live our way on our terms. We are Israelites after all. We've got and kept the law. We've taken the time and effort to even interpret it. Folks, this is the attitude of the older son in the prodigal Remember, the prodigal runs away and then the prodigal comes back after he comes to his senses. The older son who kept all the rules when the young little punk comes back and he's just dirty with dad. Because he's like, wait a second, I kept all the rules. And you're going to be nice to him? How much of the world is like that? How, How much are we like that? You see, this is why Jesus tells the story he does at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 21. Before he goes to the cross, he tells this parable where he says, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? This is worse than ignorance. This is even worse than moral rejection. This is refusal. This is a willful and mixed. This is willful, but it's mixed with a lack of gratitude. Charles Spurgeon preached it this way. He says, the further our Lord Jesus went on in life, the more did he experimentally know the base ingratitude of mankind. He forgot himself. He utterly renounced all ambitious purposes. He gave himself away that he might seek and save the lost. Spurgeon says, no mother ever loved her baby as Jesus loved his own which were in the world. And yet, continually in every way, men sought to take away his life, which was more valuable to them than it was to him. How often had he to escape their cruel hands? And when his hour was come, how eagerly did they conspire to hound him to his death? See, John 1.10 tells us why most of humanity rejects Jesus. We're spiritually dead and we're morally depraved. But verse 11 tells us why even religious people refuse Jesus because they want the glory for themselves. See, too many people going to church today talk about Jesus but don't trust him. You see, they trust themselves. They want a Messiah, but they're too busy being their own Messiah to submit and humbly accept Jesus. You see, moral achievers want credit. They don't mind being somewhat wrong, needing some help, but don't tell them they're totally wrong and that their greatest need is to be saved from their good works and from their bad works. What? Never. 
all men and women who reject and refuse Jesus love the darkness more than the light. The first group because it's more comfortable to do wicked things. That's why nobody ever really goes into a well-lit place to steal. You like the darkness. But the reason why religious people like the darkness is because when you're comparing yourself to others, what better place to do it than if you've got a little bit of light to say, but he's got none. But you don't want to show yourself to the light of the world. The world is either ignorant, rejecting, or refusing Jesus. This Christmas, can I ask you, church, is that you? Are you here this morning going, you know what? Wow. See, if I never realized it, I'm actually just unaware of Jesus. Or I've actually just been kind of rejecting him. Like, I, I just like my life the way it is. Or... No, I'm actually looking them square in the face going, I don't want you. So Jesus came and he's rejected. And again, if that's where it ends, I'm a pathetic preacher. And I wouldn't want you to be a part of this church because I will run from it. But then verse 12 and 13 happens. And you have the light of the world accepted. But all to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, notice how John's doing it. He gave, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. See, the picture's not all negative because some do believe both in Israel and among the nations. That's the double promise in Revelation that from every kindred and every tribe and every tongue and every people that people will believe Jesus. But notice the synonyms in verse 12. Those who did receive him, then they believed in his name. In verse 13, they're being born of God. This is the piling up of it. that John actually tells us what faith or belief looks like. It means you receive Jesus. You believe in him, which results in being transformed. You see, faith in Jesus is very different from knowing about Jesus. And my burden for most of you in this room and most of the people that I talk to is they think, if I just know about Jesus, I'm good enough. But you got to know him, not just know about him. Again, I'll use an illustration. I know about Sidney Crosby. I can give you all kinds of statistics about him. When he scored his first goal, how many times he's won the scoring race, how many Stanley Cups he's won. I know where he's from. I know the names of his parents. I've never met him. I don't know him. I just know about him. If Sidney Crosby walked up here, I wouldn't go, yo, Sid the kid, dude, what's up? He'd look at me and go, who the heck are you? Because he doesn't know me and I don't know him. I know about him, but I don't know him. So here is this. Here's my question for you. You have to receive Jesus as he reveals himself. See, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you got to believe in Jesus as he tells you he is. He's not just a guy. He's God in the flesh. Secondly, you have to receive Jesus in why he came. 
We're going to learn about this in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us Jesus came to save his people from their sins. If you and I want to be a child of God, if we're going to accept Jesus, that means you've got to admit, I'm a sinner. You see, AA gets this right. For those that have struggled with alcohol, you go to an AA meeting, and one of the first things you do is you stand up and you go, hey, I'm Steve, and it's been this long since my last drink because I'm an alcoholic. Well, see, to me, Christians should be like um, uh, CA. It's Christians Anonymous. Where we, we come and, and we say, hey, my, my name is Steve. It's been like a, a fraction of a second since my last sin, and I'm a mess, and I need Jesus. Because Jesus came to save me. You see, Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He came to save you. He gave his life as a ransom for you and me. And you've got to believe you need saving. You've got to believe you need rescuing. You can't save yourself. A couple of summers ago, Grace and Abby came with us up to PEI. And we took them out to one of the best, most beautiful beaches in all of Canada. Um, it's, it's where, it's, it's where the, what they call the singing sands. It's these beautiful white beaches uh, in PEI. And it's very shallow. The water's very warm. And the girls were out there playing. And the, the girls were doing their thing. And I was constantly keeping an eye on them. And I was, are you guys okay? And you guys, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're good. We're good. And then all of a sudden, hoop! Help! And I see Grace kind of bobbing up and down, waving her hand. And, and Abby is just doing this weird kind of drowny failing thing because she had gotten caught in where the two currents came together and she would not get, not get her feet underneath her and she was being sucked down. And Grace knew that this wasn't good. And, and Abby knew this wasn't good. And the yells for saving were out and they didn't care who came, just save me. Will you and I be at the point where like, you know what, Jesus, I need, I, I need saving. And you have to receive Jesus personally. Thomas said in Matthew chapter 20, my Lord and my God. Romans 10 tells us that if you will believe in your heart that Jesus is God and confess with your mouth. Now, what do you actually receive? Because notice this, but as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Have you ever thought about what you get when you get saved? Well, number one, you get the love of God. You get the love of God, Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I am loved by God. Listen, I am a world-class screw-up, and I'm loved by God, and none of you can take that away, because God loves me. That song is right. Children, don't just kids, the kids sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When you receive him, you're loved by him. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. But you also receive, now get this, because you probably didn't think I was going to wing this one out here today. You also get the discipline of God. Doesn't that all give you the warm and fuzzies? If you get Jesus, you get his love, but you also get his discipline. Hebrews 12 actually says one of the proofs that you belong to Jesus is he corrects you and he forms you. You see, once you're a Christian, I will never answer punitively for my sin. 
I will never have to answer for my sins punitively. The penalty's been paid. But because God loves me, he corrects me and he forms me. And that's evidence of God's love. And by the way, parents, you want to show your kids you love them? Love them enough to correct them and form them. Don't let them do whatever they want. That's not love. That's actually not love. The old King James on Hebrews 12 says that if you don't experience the discipline, the loving discipline of God, the old King James actually says you are bastard children. You're fatherless kids. That's what it means. When you receive Jesus, you receive his love, you receive his discipline. But listen, you receive personal, eternal access to God. Hebrews 4 says, we don't, have a high, we don't have a priest that doesn't know how we feel. We know he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Corinthians tells us absent from the body is present with the Lord. Colossians says since we've been risen with Christ, we now live with hope. The entire book of Revelation is the promise of faith one day becoming sight. We are children, joint heirs, adopted, loved with the promise that we can be never let go. John says in John chapter 10, quoting Jesus, he goes, no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. You see, people ask me all the time, have you ever doubted your salvation? And I can honestly tell you, I never have. I've never doubted my salvation. Why? Because it doesn't rest with me. Me being saved is not about me. It's about God. God did this for me. Spurgeon says, and notice what, sorry, in John, uh, John 1, 13, he says, this is all of God. Now look at it. He says, it's not of blood, which means it's not in your family. You can't see. God doesn't have any grandkids. He's only got children. So it's not of blood, nor is it of the, the will of man, nor of the will of flesh. You can't will yourself to it. You can't be good enough. You can't have some priest or minister or pastor or elder tell you, well, I'm going to tell you you are. It's not. It's of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, the faith, grace, all that, it is the gift of God. It's all been given to you by God. But wait, there's more. Okay? Because verses 14 to 18, the light of the world is displayed. You see this. God becomes flesh, is on display everywhere in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and 2 and John 1. He wants us to apply the truth. See, John who's concerned with truth and lies, with acceptance and rejection, with forgiveness and condemnation, with belief and unbelief, he would record Jesus in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, it's funny because everybody kind of knows that verse, but at funerals, a lot verses 1 to 5 are read right? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That, that, but then the very next verse is, but I'm the only way to all that. The only one to five only happens if you get verse six. As we start the Christmas season and you and I get geared up and maybe even tossed around, I didn't want you to think with me what John is saying here about how the truth that Jesus is God, Jesus is the only way, and you and I see God and relate to God and come to God and hear from God and go to God. I want us to understand Isaiah 6, 9, 9, 6, sorry, for unto us a child is born 
to us a son is given. I want you to see this because I want you to understand that Jesus is both God and man. And you see that in this verse because notice, for unto us a child is born, that's his man part, but to us a son is given. That's his God part. So why is that important? Because Jesus was born to die. But as God, he was given to redeem. Because he was born, he, died, he was born to die in his humanity. Because God sent him, he could redeem us. Because he was born to understand how we feel. He experienced tiredness. He experienced hunger. He experienced rejection. He experienced loneliness. But he was given to answer. He gives us an answer to all of those things. He was born as our example. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he says that, but he was given as our substitute. See, Jesus lived the life you and I could never live. He lived perfectly on our behalf. He was given as our substitute. And finally, Jesus was born to show value for life. He loved the very least of people. It didn't matter what your sin it didn't matter your color of your skin or your social standing. It didn't matter if you were male or female, young or old. He showed value for life, but he was given to restore it. See, Jesus didn't pretend like life was as it should be. He was honest enough to say, this is not the way it should be. In fact, I dare you to study all the miracles that are recorded in the gospel of Jesus and actually tell yourself, this is Jesus giving the world commercials of life the way it should be, not the way it is. Because we were never meant to die or to suffer or to hurt each other or to starve to death or be blind or lame or mute or not. And so these miracles were meant to be previews of coming attractions. Kevin DeYoung expressed it like this. Every person in your life has inherent worth and dignity because they are created in the image of God. And so verse 14, notice, tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. C.S. Lewis said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Verse 16 promises that Jesus as the God-man gives us grace to be saved and then eternally gives us grace upon grace to live for him. Verse 17 shows us why the law can only condemn but grace saves. I put it on my Facebook this morning. A.W. Pink writes, Law manifested what was in man, sin. Grace manifests what is in God, love. Law demands righteousness from me. Grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. Law speaks to, of what men do for God. Grace tells us what Christ has done for men. I've told a, a guy, I had coffee with a guy this week, and I said, listen, the gospel's not trying harder. It's believing better. Don't try to earn God's favor. Believe that if you come to him, he gives it to you. And then live that. And then you come to the end in verse 18, where he says, God is Jesus Christ is God. No one can see God, but the God you do see is Jesus Christ, and he has made him known. So Calvary Baptist and ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is God, full stop. He was born like us and given to us. He is the mediator between God and man. Tim Keller puts it like this. Jesus Christ is the word of God because no more comprehensive, personal, and beautiful communication of God is possible. 
And so as we end this morning, what's your response to Christmas? Or rather, what's your response to Jesus? John tells us you either reject or accept. Now, I know that some of you might be looking at me right now and going, Steve, you, you don't know me. If you only knew how bad I am, if you only knew how not good enough or not important enough I am. And I still think that some of you may be sitting here going, you know what, Steve, listen, you, man, you've worked up a sweat and you've gotten pretty animated and you just need to chill out because I'm really not that bad. I, I don't need saving. I don't need changing or redeeming. And, and you're sitting there going, look, listen, man, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but me and Jesus, we're cool. We've got an arrangement. I've done some bad stuff, but I've also done lots of good stuff. And my good works or my family or my denomination, my saying some nice things about God and to God count for something, right? And I'm, I'm trusting in that. And tragically, some of you might even be thinking, Steve, with all due respect, who cares? And without even articulating it, your attitude might be, listen, man, I'll see you in hell or wherever else that means and just chill out. But some of you might be thinking, Jesus loves me. He came and did all this for me. See, I've never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. Amen. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. You'll never be bad enough that God doesn't love you and you'll never be good enough that God doesn't need to save you. And friends, Jesus was and is and always will be God. He became a human being so that we could be forgiven, redeemed, and restored. He lived for us and died for us. Why? To give God glory and display God's glory and God's mercy and love to us. Again, Tim Keller says, If sin is not just breaking the rules, but putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, then everyone is guilty of sin. So trust him when he tells you he, you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself and you even can't change yourself in any way that would make you acceptable to God. But will you trust Jesus? See, the bad news is really bad. Many in the world, maybe even in this room, will miss Jesus because they're too busy living for themselves, for themselves to even notice. Some will reject him because living your way is more important and valuable to you than just trusting Jesus to live his way. But the tragedy of tragedies would be to refuse Jesus to actually have sat under the sound teaching of God's truth and seen him display and taught to you and still say, I refuse to believe in you. I'll talk about you and I'll acknowledge you and I'll even give you compliments and give you props, but I will not submit my life to you and trust you with my life. So is Jesus your savior? He will be if you'll trust him. In him. See, John tells us whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And Christians, as Christ Christmas comes, are you trusting in Jesus daily? Are you drawing from the well that grace upon grace that's promised you in John 17? Are you living for Jesus by grace and his grace flowing from you to others? So 2 Peter 3.18 that, that uh, Daniel preached through, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've read a lot about this this week. 
Some old preachers and evangelists, I've thought hard and long about this passage and about Christmas and what it means. And I'm going to ask you to join me as we sing an old hymn this morning and not ask that this Christmas, would your prayer would be this Christmas, oh God, this Christmas, don't pass me by. Pass me not, oh gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. Will you this day cry out to Jesus and admit and accept and trust him and then live? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach. Lord, I'm not the authority here. You are. Lord, I pray that every man and woman here would know from the person I've never met to the one I know the best. That my desire was never to stand up here and tell them, these are my opinions. Live up to my standards. Or that would be hopeless and useless. Father, would you show me, us, yourself. Father, would we hear this Christmas the gentle, loving, soft call of Jesus. My God and my Savior, don't allow this Sunday or this Christmas to pass us by where we don't know you and have it radically, eternally, profoundly change our lives forever. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.